Happy Thanksgiving week. It's a special week and unusual because usually the Sunday after Thanksgiving is the first Sunday in Advent, and this year it's not. So we're going to be focusing on Thanksgiving this week, Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday. So let's do a little thought experiment here. Imagine it's Thanksgiving Day, you are seated at the table with your family and friends, and you get to sit next to the Apostle Paul. This is a thought exercise, it won't happen. But, but what would it be like? Would he listen to the family tell stories from the year, or would he also share some of his own stories? I, I don't know. And then, and then there would be that time when you go around and you share what you're thankful for. You know, some people will put out M&Ms or candy corn, you know, and you share one for each one, right? So what would, what would Paul say when it got to be his turn? Would he say, I'm thankful for my tent-making business? Or maybe he'd say, um, I, I want to thank God for my letter carriers, Phoebe and Epaphroditus. I'm so thankful for the work they've done. Maybe he'd, he'd take a piece of candy and he'd say, you know, and he'd pause. I want to thank God for John Mark and for Peter. What would be on Paul's Thanksgiving list? You know, actually, we don't have to speculate. We don't have to imagine this because most of Paul's letters begin with the Thanksgiving. It's, it's part of the structure of the letters in the New Testament. One of my seminary professors, Jeff Wyma, is an expert on what is called epistolary analysis. And in, in normal language, what that means is that he studies the pattern and the structure of biblical letters. In, in sort of the same way that every type of literature and media has a structure, right? A business letter has a structure. A short film has a structure. A sermon has a structure. Right now we're in the introduction part. And, and letters, too, they have a structure. They usually start off with who it's from and who it's to and some sort of a blessing. And then, usually in most of the letters, there's a section of thanksgiving. It sometimes begins, I thank my God. And if you want to read the thanksgiving lists in Paul's epistles, here they are. You can, we are not going to be studying all of them. This is just three different days we're going to preach on this. But if you want to read them this week to see how Paul gives thanks, here's a great devotional idea. And these Thanksgiving sections have, have several functions. They can help us to understand the letters themselves. They can help us to understand Paul's particular relationship with the people to whom he's writing. They are relational and pastoral. They, they teach and encourage, and they also foreshadow what's coming. Paul will introduce themes in his Thanksgiving statements that are called to later called back later in the letter. But beyond these immediate functions to the original hearers, they can also teach us how to give thanks. They can guide us to center our thanksgivings on God. And that's what we're going to do this week. We're going to learn from Paul's thanksgiving so that when it's your turn to say what you're thankful for, Perhaps you can join Paul in his thanksgiving. You can say, I thank God. I'm, I'm thankful to God that you 
Hinsdale Covenant Church are proclaiming your faith through your mission partnership in Shopta. That's my Thanksgiving modeled after Romans 1. And, and here's one after 1 Corinthians. I thank my God that he has given you all kinds of gifts. Gifts of stewardship and generosity. Gifts of the ability to work hard and smart. Gifts of design and strategy. God is faithful. And then, if we're going through scripture, we get to 2 Corinthians. So I invite you to stand with me to hear Paul's thanksgiving in this letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and the God of all consolation, who consoles us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which we ourselves are consoled by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. If we are being afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. If we are being consoled, it is for your consolation, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we are also suffering. Our hope for you isn't shaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, so you also share in our consolation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So, Paul's thanksgiving here is a little bit different than what you might read in some of the other letters, but it does begin with an expression of gratitude to God. Sometimes uh, Paul will give God thanks for the recipients. He's not doing this here. But he is thanking and blessing and praising God in verse 3. Praise be. Blessed be God. And, And why is he praising God? Why is he blessing and thanking God? Well, there's some hints in this text why a great Bible study tool is just looking at words that are repeated, and the word that is repeated here is the word consolation. If you have your own Bible and you're using an NIV, you'll see the word comfort. Those are both great translations. Paul is praising God because, of, because God provides consolation. God provides comfort ten times. So, But what does this mean to be comforted by God? I remember being a younger parent or just taking care of other people's babies or children. And and when the child would cry, I would give them a pacifier or a soft blanket and hold them in a certain way so they would be comforted and stop crying. Is this what Paul means? I I remember one time playing with a particular child. and, And we were playing a game she had made up, and it was called Mama Bee and Baby Bee, and the bees were invisible. This was Mama Bee, and she had her little hand, and that was Baby Bee. My hand's too big. You'll have to imagine. And, and the Baby Bee was crying, and the Mama Bee said, What do you want? And the Baby Bee said, Passy Baba. Pacifier, blanket. And so the Mama Bee got an invisible blanket, an invisible pacifier, and the Baby Bee was comforted. Is that what comfort is? Instant, imaginary pacifier and blanket to a baby bee. 
you know, that's a good start, but I do think that God's comforting ways are a lot more expansive than any baby bee soothing or even infant soothing. So here's what we see about comfort from the text. Here's the expansiveness of comfort. First, comfort is from God. God comforts us when we are afflicted and when we suffer. Second, God comforts us for a reason. He comforts us so that we can comfort others. This comfort has a direction. It goes somewhere. You, you don't just take the passy baba and then it stops with a child. It keeps on going. It has a telos. It goes from you to others. But the comfort does not stand alone. Comfort has a companion, and that's suffering. God's comfort is accompanied by the suffering of Christ. It's a match set. Suffering and comfort are companions. It does make sense if you think about it. We really cannot be comforted if we are not suffering, right? You can't comfort the comfortable. To be comforted requires some suffering. And then finally, Paul writes, we're in this together, Paul's affliction leads to the Corinthians' comfort and their salvation, and and they both share in comfort and suffering together. And for all this, Paul blesses God, he praises God, he thanks God. Now, maybe you're wondering, well, why is he suffering? He hasn't exactly said. Why is he suffering, and why is he emphasizing this suffering and comfort together at the beginning of the letter? What is going on? Well, Paul has, and he is experiencing some suffering when he writes the letter. And if you know the story surrounding 2 Corinthians, it's actually kind of awkward that he's saying this. Because the last time he visited this church, this congregation, there was some tension going on between him and the people. He had to confront a situation, and a lot of people didn't like how how he dealt with it, and then they got upset, and... In the time that's passed between that confrontation and this letter, these other teachers, Paul jokingly calls them super apostles, uh, they have arrived and they are undermining Paul's reputation and pastoral authority and teaching. And in addition, Paul's travel plans have changed a number of times. He he was going to visit and then he wasn't, and folks are really frustrated at him. They, They think he's unreliable. They say he's untrustworthy. So part of the suffering Paul's experiencing has to do with the very people he's writing to. I think he has a lot of chutzpah to, like, name it. (laughs) But this is actually not his only experience of suffering. This is just one. Um, Paul's quite a pro at suffering. Later on in 2 Corinthians, he, he gives this huge list of his suffering, and I'd like to read it to you. This is chapter 11. Paul writes, Five times... I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day, I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, now, that's not like a vacation. Journeys were super dangerous in the first century. In danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers and sisters and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. And besides other things, I am under daily pressure for all my anxiety for all the churches. 
He's not exaggerating here. In the book of Acts, which Paul did not write, he tells some of these stories, or we read some of these stories that happened to him. And in this context, he is reminding the the church in Corinth that he has suffered with Christ for the gospel, and these super apostles, they really haven't. And, And I know my story, and I know some of your stories, and I know that many of us have suffered in some pretty tough ways, but I would humbly conjecture that Paul did have it worse. He has suffered more. And, and on top of this strained relationship with the church, he writes at the end, you see his, his, little, his little dig, he writes of an anxiety for all the churches, including you, Corinth. Do you think Passy Baba would comfort him here? No. I think Paul's need for comfort goes much, much deeper. But as he said earlier, in this suffering is the comfort of God, the God of all comfort. And in this suffering and comfort that go together, Paul is then able to turn around and comfort the Corinthian church. And Paul, in this whole thing, he's blessing and praising God and giving thanks for all of this. There's another letter Uh, we won't be studying it this week, where Paul instructs the readers to give thanks in all circumstances. Not for all circumstances, note that. And he's, he's certainly modeling this here. He's not even thanking God for the church that's caused some of his suffering, but he is thanking God for his comfort in the midst of the suffering, for God's comfort in the midst of relational and physical suffering and hardship. Because to Paul, and this is really important, comfort or consolation is not just about the exterior feelings of being okay. It is about a deep-seated hope and confidence in God's work. Paul is comforted by God, who God is, what God is doing, and what he's going to do. And this comfort surrounds him, past, present, and future. And it's not about how he feels right now. It's not about his feeling. It's about who God is. I want to offer an illustration to help us understand this. So several years ago, in Harper County, Kansas, oil companies started knocking on the doors of farmers to purchase the mineral rights to their land. Now, a year before this started, mineral rights might have sold for $25 an acre. But once oil was discovered, the price shot up to over $1,200 an acre, and farmers own a lot of acreage. So here's part of a CNN article that reported on it. John Walker, a 63-year-old farmer who has been harvesting wheat in the small town of Anthony since he was six years old, has received $1.5 million over the past year after leasing out mineral rights on 2,000 acres of his land. And then they quote what he said. He says, I had to pinch myself every morning just to know I'm awake. We've kind of hit the jackpot. Now, I'm not telling this story to promote any kind of health and wealth gospel that Pastor Lars preached against last week. That's not where we're going here. Okay, what I'm going for in this story is that it is a metaphor for God's comfort. 
often we can think of God's comfort as being like that wheat acreage that Mr. Walker had harvested his whole life, right? You can look out, you can see it growing. You see it, you plant and harvest, and it is a good and beautiful thing for which to give thanks. And we do this in our life. We, we experience God's comfort, and we name it in certain ways. We say, like, you know what? I had a good day today. I, I'm thankful for God for that. My, we might say, students, my teacher liked my work. I got an A. Or I got that promotion I'd been trying for. Or, uh, this is my wheat field, I got to hold a baby today. It gives me a good day. Or the Cooper's hawk landed in a pine and it sat there for 15 minutes and I watched it. Or the sun finally came out or my friend recovered from the flu and these are all good comforts and they are gifts of God and they are like Mr. Walker's wheat field. But God's comfort goes much deeper. It's like the riches of oil underneath the wheat field. You can't always see it. You don't, you might not even know it's there, but it is. And it is way more valuable than the wheat. And this oil is our trust in the ultimate character of God. His hased, that's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament that means his loving kindness, his faithfulness, his presence. The assurance of salvation we have in Christ. Our comfort is that even when there's a drought, or the locusts eat up the wheat, or there's a wildfire, or your day is bad, or you're fired from your job, or your job just sucks for 20 years and you never get out of it, or the sun doesn't come out for three months, or your neighbor never recovers, or the baby dies. Our comfort, just like the oil under the land, is still there. And so in that, you can proclaim, just like Paul does later in the same letter, for our slight momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Just like that oil. So as I studied the text this week and Paul's points about comfort and that in our comfort we comfort others, I I sensed a challenge from the Holy Spirit. Uh, Part of my own philosophy in preaching is that I want to tell you God's story. I I don't like pastors when they talk too much about themselves. I'm pretty private. Um, I'm not on social media. Um, But as I studied the text, I, I had a sense like, Joy, you need to share some of your sufferings and how I've comforted you so that you can comfort others. So I want to share, you, share with you three little snapshots in my life of suffering and how God has comforted me in it. So some of you have heard this story before. When I was 16, my family moved from Highland, Indiana, where you buy the fireworks, to rural North Dakota because of my dad's job, because you move where the job is, right? Um... I went from a high school class of 500 to a high school class of 25. And my initial optimism, because I love Laura Ingalls Wilder, my initial optimism was met with the brutal experience of loneliness 
and really feeling like a true outsider. And it was a, a time of suffering. It was a really tough time. Another tough time for me in life uh, was the year 2008. Justin and I had been married for eight years. That January, I had a miscarriage. And then in August, I was pregnant again. And because it didn't feel like the doctors had really helped much the first time, and I'm not recommending what I'm about to say, but I had decided not to go to the doctor. If I would have gone to the doctor, we would have learned that the embryo had attached itself to my fallopian tube and not my uterus, which it had. And the day my fallopian tube ruptured, I internally bled for four hours before going to the doctor's office. And I was rushed into the emergency room and they vacuumed out over a liter of blood from my abdomen, I almost died. Recovery took weeks. I was down a fallopian tube. Justin and I just re resigned ourselves that we would probably never be able to have children. And I started looking into PhD programs because in my mind, that's what I was gonna do. And then in 2015, Justin had been under and unemployed for over a year. Our kids were little. He couldn't find work in Michigan. And the only job he found was here in Illinois. And you have to move to where the job is, right? I, I had loved living in Michigan. I loved our church. I loved our little neighborhood, our bungalow. We could walk places. We led a small group of friends, and I grieved so bad, my whole body hurt for months. I'm really bad at moving. All these things have been suffering in my life. I mean, nothing like shipwreck or being beaten with rods or stoned, like Paul writes about, but it still was suffering. And God's comfort comes in different ways, right? But as I look back years later at some of these events, I see God's presence there. I see God at work. That, that part in North Dakota, I, I'd not, I would not have met my husband Justin if we wouldn't have moved. He's from Minnesota. I wouldn't have met him. And then and in 2008, the, the children that Justin and I have now, Evelyn and Judah, we wouldn't have had those children if those pregnancies would have been successful if that year wouldn't have been filled with loss. And, and we are so thankful for the blessings that they are. And then that, that move eight years ago, maybe you see where I'm going with this. You know, in West Michigan, there's a gazillion pastors. There's three seminaries that just crank them out. And um, I wouldn't be serving here today without that move. And, and I do see God's comfort and consolation, even in that pain and suffering. And I give thanks for this. And, and I give thanks for the sufferings I experienced. God is at work. When we have a little bit of property. We, we don't live in Hinsdale. And we try to grow food on it. And we named it Consolation Farm. We named it after our experience of the goodness of God. And some of our suffering still doesn't make sense. I, I have stories I didn't tell you. They don't have a good conclusion. This, the field is still burnt down. But we can trust that even when it is, we can trust in the presence of God, his character, his purposes, even when we can't see it, like the oil under the field. And our God is at work. Our God takes the ultimate suffering, the death of Christ himself, and he uses it for his ultimate glory, the reconciliation of humanity to God 
And that is consolation. That is comfort. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Amen. So, we're going to practice giving thanks. You don't have to give thanks for your deepest suffering. (laughs) You might need time to meditate on that. But Pastor Tammy reminded me this morning that anxiety and thanksgiving cannot rely, cannot live in our mind at the same time. So we're going to practice thanksgiving together. We're going to take some time to turn to our neighbors, get in small groups of three, four, or five, maybe with some people you don't know. And you don't need to share with them. We're just going to pray together as God's people. Worship is a gym where we exercise our faith and our spirituality together. So we're going to take a time together of corporate thanksgiving, not sharing it with me. We're all priests, sharing it directly with God, the Father, the giver of all good gifts. Let's turn to one another. I know this is unusual. Turn to one another in groups larger than two and give thanks to God, the giver of all good gifts.